power is based on perception. If you think you got it, you got it, even if you don't got it. And he sort of sees his mission in the world as going to people that are seen being bogged down by institutions or feel like they're being stepped on and making them realize you have power. You just have to recognize it. My guest today is Rich Cohen. Rich is a New York Times bestselling author and is also the co-creator of the HBO series Vinyl. Rich's dad, Herbie Cohen, was named the world's greatest negotiator. He taught negotiating strategy as a consultant to corporations, governmental entities, and other organizations. In fact, the Carter administration called upon him to help negotiate the release of the 52 American hostages back from Iran. His latest book is titled The Adventures of Herbie Cohen, World's Greatest Negotiator. I recently sat down with Rich and we talked about Herbie's upbringing in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn in the 1940s and 50s. We talked about his pals Larry King and Sandy Koufax and how all of this impacted his life and taught him all he needed to know about negotiating. Rich, thanks so much for coming on the show. I greatly appreciate it. And since I got the book, I read it and I said, wow, we, we, we have to have you on the show. <laughs> because there's so much commonality between uh, my father and your father. In fact, they grew up just a few blocks from each other. And a lot of the stories that I was reading in your book were, could have been written by, uh, been about my father <laughs> and his friends. <laughs> well, we're, we're, we're blessed and cursed as the sons of uh, large personalities. Oh, 100%. The name, of the, book, <laughs> the name of the book, folks, is The Adventures of Herbie Cohen, World's Greatest Negotiator. So let's start right off the bat. For those who don't know Herbie Cohen and don't know his book that he wrote in 1980, uh, tell us who he was and why he wrote a book about his life. Well, my father, is he's a business guy and he's a lecturer and a, a negotiator, but he has a whole philosophy of life that I've lived by that he had, I think, since he was a kid. And that's summed up as the secret to success is to care, but not that much. And he... Uh, He's just this kind of a Brooklyn street kid from Bensonhurst. And he wound up working for Allstate while he was in law school just to make some extra money. And he wound up this incredibly great claims adjuster. And he went through the ranks of Allstate. And he ended up at Sears. They had him running all the negotiations for the whole company when Sears was the biggest company in the world. And then ultimately, he went out on his own because Sears was lending him out to other people to do their negotiations. He's like, I'm better off just doing it myself and getting paid directly. And he wound up working for like, it seems like every Fortune 500 company. And then later, he started running programs for the FBI and CIA. And he trained a lot of cities, like SWAT teams, how to negotiate with terrorists. He worked for the FBI, trained their terrorists. He set up, helped set up their behavioral sciences unit. And when I was a kid, he worked on the strategic arms reduction talks, the START talks, which are the last non-proliferation nuclear treaties that still are in, still work. They're still active, the last ones. And... Um, so he kind of went from Warriors Clubhouse to Table with the Russians in Geneva, but it was all the same philosophy. And then he kind of became famous to the larger world when I was a kid because he went into our basement and he came out six months later with this book he wrote, You Can Negotiate Anything, that I think it create, sort of coined the phrase win-win, which is his philosophy, and it became sold two million copies or something. And... Um, and the thing that really made him famous when I was a kid is he worked for the Carter administration. They brought him in during the Iran hostage crisis, and he was frustrated by the Carter administration and the way that they were handling it. And he went on TV and he predicted the time and date the hostages would be released, and his prediction was off by just three minutes. 
Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what made made his name really crazy yeah. Kreskin like prediction. You know, I remember back, I think it was early 80s, reading his book, coming across it, you know, it had such a huge title, like you can negotiate anything. And it had this guy on the cover, like, come on, really? And, um, you know, I remember reading the book back then, close to 40 years ago, and uh, there was such a flavor to it that I was so uh, um, not only comfortable with, but familiar with, because my father grew up just a few blocks away from your dad. Well, it's sort of common sense from where they grew up. But for a lot of people, especially moving to Chicago, it isn't common sense. Like questioning authority, questioning sticker price, always asking for a little more, always going back that you can do all that. And he actually had fun doing it. The thing was approach life like it's a game. And I think what was new about his book was he didn't say, I'm going to teach you how to negotiate. He said, I don't have to teach you. You already know. You do it naturally. I'm just going to teach you to be aware of what you're doing and then you'll do it better and have fun doing it. And it wasn't an academic book. A lot of the business books had been academic. It was written like a guy talking to you from Brooklyn. Yeah, yeah. And it was half of it was about business negotiations. Half of it was about family negotiations. It actually opens up with a story about me freaking out at a restaurant when I was nine years old. Right. Yeah. It's, it's a lot of stories, and it's you know story point, story point. Really, an easy way to read. And uh, for our viewers who have no idea what we're talking about, we're talking about a place in Brooklyn called Bensonhurst, which. Uh, which, why don't you tell us, where, what is Bensonhurst? Why was it so special? What made it so different? And how do they get guys like your dad, my dad, and a whole bunch of other amazing people? Well, it was right on the Brooklyn, on the, on the Narrows, you know, the Verrazano Narrows. And eventually the, the Verrazano Narrows Bridge went up there. I think he watched it being built, the Verrazano Narrows Bridge. It was the last stop on the subway. And it became like a way to kind of have a middle class or lower middle class suburban life and still be in the city. So my grandfather, who worked at a, a, owned a small factory that made hat bindings in Lower East Side, would take that train trip every day. And they were all lived in apartments, mostly. And um, it was this neighborhood that was mixed. My father used to say it was 49% Jewish, 49% Italian, 2% mm-hmm. other. You know, so, and they were this mix of Italians and Jews. Mo- a lot of them were the sons of immigrants, mm-hmm. first generation. Like my parent, my father was... My father's parents, Yiddish was their first language. They, my grandfather came to America when he was like 14. My grandmother, when she was like 12, they both came alone. So it kind of had this unique, I always said it was like the old world in the apartment and the new world in the street. And it gave them this kind of unique perspective of like a foot in both worlds. And it became very special and it produced a lot of really successful people um, of every variety, meaning like, you know, Elliot Gould, Sandy Koufax, Vic Damone. I got the whole list when I was a kid. Sammy the Bull Gravano. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, you got like the up, like my grandma used to say, it's terrible to have a gangster. Showing Jewish gangster is terrible. There should not be a Jewish gangster. But if there is, let him be the best <laughs> Jewish gangster there is. And so that's what they were producing, the best of everything. Right. You know, from your book. So you, so before we get into that, why did you write this book? Because you've written, you've written a ton of books, right? Uh, you you read. I remember reading your book, um, "Tough Jews," which about Jewish gangsters back uh, in the twenties and thirties. Uh, phenomenal yeah. book, really great stuff. You wrote book on, books on sports. You uh, co-wrote or co-creator of Vinyls uh, HBO about the music industry, which I loved. I want to tell you, it was one season, but it was absolutely, <laughs> it was really good. 
It was, <laughs> and what the way it ends, like I was waiting for the next. That was a, such a shame. I know, that I big bummer about. that it wasn't. Even yeah, TV. no, it was, folks. If you if you could find it, um, I don't know if HBO still has it on, but Vinyls was really yeah, great. Yeah, they have it on. Oh yeah, they it was uh, yeah. phenomenal. Just the whole music industry, the the whole um, the turn of nineteen fifties or so, how the uh, industry really uh, grew. But that, that was a great thing. So why did you, this is your latest book, right? So you're writing a book about your dad. Why why did you write this book? What was missing? Because I think that um, in a way, I'm always telling the same story when I'm writing what I want to write. I'm very interested in stories that have an arc. They tell a story, but are also about something that they have. a You come away with a sense of a person and a different way of thinking and can expand your own way of thinking a little bit. So I wrote a book about Jerry Weintraub with him, the movie producer. Who, and he's very much the same kind of story. I wrote a, a, story, a book called The Fish That Ate the Whale about this guy, Sam Zimmery, who was an immigrant fruit peddler uh, who started out selling rotten bananas and ended up taking over United Fruit, you know? So I feel like all these stories were kind of my father's story too. My father's story to me was the, not only was, you know, the greatest story I knew because I grew up with it, but was also the American dream story, which is what I keep wanting to tell over and over again, which is he came from, you know, like his grandparents, his grandfather had to work on the dock in Antwerp to get enough money for six months when he was a kid to come across to New York. And his son winds up representing the United States at the nuclear talks. Amazing. I mean, that's the American dream, yeah. you know? So to me, and, and then you add to it, my father's very funny, very colorful, a lot of great stories. It's always fun to talk about him. And he has a philosophy. It's not empty, you know? There, it's like his stuff. Like my father would always say anything he really cares about. He'd say, oh, it's not about, he loves Frank Sinatra, right? course mm-hmm. and he'd always say we got two kinds of music in this car 70s sinatra and 50s sinatra your mm-hmm. choice <laughs> so when, whenever he liked the sinatra song he'd say oh it's not about a ballpark it's about life so to him everything is immediately about everything you know so i that's kind of how he taught me to think and the way businesses work the way they grow the way they age becomes a parable for life you know and i wrote a book called sweet and low about my, my, my mother's father was a guy who worked in the diner as a counterman and he invented the sugar packet and he invented the soy sauce packet and he invented sweet and low. And that they, com- the company they started called Cumberland Packing Company, which still exists. You could, three generations of that company is like the story of America, you know, mm-hmm. the building, the consolidating, the dissolution. And to me, like the thing that always made America great is that you have these new people coming in who are like the first generation mentality, like my father. So by the time you get to the grandkids who are out surfing and taking drugs, there's some other young 18-year-old Herbie Cohn who's going to come around and eat your lunch. Right. Basically. So this is that story, again, just at the, but the, the version of it that I like best and know best. Right, right, right. So, we, we you know, I, I want to talk about a few things about your father and how we negotiated. And and where he learned, or really not really where he learned, why the, the soil was so fertile for this type of education that he had on the streets of Brooklyn. So uh, first off, his gang, right? It was the Warriors that were on uh-huh. 86th Street in Bay Parkway, right? So some, right. some members of that gang were pretty famous, or all pretty famous, right? Yeah. Well, the, of the, the people that were actually in it, the most famous one would be Larry King, who was Larry Zeiger. So there was the gang, and then there were the people that hung around that corner, which was like a bigger thing. And that bigger group was Sandy Koufax, who hung around the corner. 
in this in the in the Warriors was Larry and my father, and my father and Larry remained best friends, you know, throughout their life, and um, which drove, always drove my mother a little nuts because my father and Larry would get together. It was like they were immediately twelve years old. Mm-hmm. I loved it because it was like, wow, this is what my father must have been like as a kid. Look, he's having so much fun. My mother hated it because she always felt like a third wheel, but everybody felt like a third wheel when they were around those two. They knew each other since they were in elementary school, basically. So I think it was fertile because first of all, they had very stable homes, great public schools, and they yet they were completely free. They were allowed to roam and to get in trouble and to get on the train, you know, and to sort of do what they want. And they had this mix of ethnicities and ages and all these different people that were in New York. So it was kind of a combination of the safety of where they live and the hint of danger that gave them a lot of confidence to experiment, to try stuff. And for my father, who that's his personality, he's very outgoing. I always say he can turn any place into Brooklyn in five minutes, <laughs> you know? And I, I grew up in Illinois and he was a complete fish out of water in Illinois, like nobody had ever met a guy like that. And I think I told you this when people would ask him where he's from when I was a kid, because I couldn't figure out his accent. He'd always say, me, I'm from Cheyenne, Wyoming, which just brought him up cold. And they'd say, what are you doing, Cheyenne? He would go, I'm a Presbyterian minister. <laughs> it became a joke. I mean, that was like a joke. He always said he was going to be buried in Cheyenne. So he didn't have to visit his uh, grave. We could just look when flying from New York to LA, we can look out the window and feel like we've mm-hmm. done our, our mitzvah, you know? <laughs> so, um, I think it was just a real special, unique place and time. And it was right after World War II when the United States suddenly became the ultimate power in the world and you felt you could do anything. And then he went into the army, which was hugely important because he got mixed up with guys from all over the country and had a totally different experience. And it was like a unique stew that that generation got. I think not having the draft, probably a a lot was lost for America when not having the draft because what the draft did, in addition to creating this big standing army, it created this melting pot where all these different people, he was with all guys from the South, right. had this same experience together. And, and then he felt like when he was older, he could go down to the South and do business. He knew those guys. You know, he was in the army with them. Right. Yeah, yeah, that, that is true. You know, in, uh, Brooklyn was especially an amazing place back then because you're right, you, they, this public school system was a great public school system. And I think more importantly, there was a stable family life. You know, there were, yeah. there were there, the, 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 um, and it didn't matter, you know, Jewish or Italian, they, they was, the, it was the same type of patriarchal family. There was respect, uh, for everybody. Uh, they had large families, some had very large families, but there was really no difference. Everybody was trying to make it as a first generation American and, and they totally embraced it. And being in Brooklyn, especially in Bensonhurst area, there was so much opportunity because all you do is hop on at the end train and you're in the city. And right. you, you know, you were immersed in in different cultures, different business, different, the center of the world. It really was the center of the world. Yeah, and they could. By, they were members of the Police Athletic League, which still exists, which would get them into Dodgers games, get them on the field, get them talking to pro athletes. Yeah. They had, you know, all those baseball teams. They used to go into Madison Square Garden, and they had bowling alleys next to Madison Square Garden. They had a friend that worked there, and they would sneak through the pins. Because then you had to set up the pins, right? Yeah. And that would get them into the garden to watch a lot of basketball and a lot of hockey. Weirdly, yeah, yeah. you know, there was a lot of different hockey in the garden. You know what I found so interesting is that, especially for my dad and his friends, it wasn't a sense of entitlement. It was a sense of, uh, as you mentioned in the book about your dad, also about it was power based on perception. They walked around like they were a partner. There was never any 
uh, doubt uh, or confidence. So if there was a if there was a situation where they had to get to the front of the line, they would walk over without any fear or anything. You know, I'm with so and so, or let me in because it, and you know, it wasn't it wasn't even an afterthought. It was like everyone else are the schmucks. They wait online. I don't. It was a, right. it was a, a swagger. It really was a swagger, but it wasn't a mean swagger. No, and and I they were very comfortable in the world. Yeah. And comfortable in their own skin and they felt like they could talk to anybody and go into any yeah. environment and be fine you know and that's like uh because i have little kids i have kids now and kids aren't in situations so much where they have to be alone where you start out alone and then you wind up figuring out how the thing works and you make your way up in it you know and they grew up also with those movies man with those great william holden movies and and um all that you know culture that they grew up in and uh, I remember my, when I was, he was, my father was very successful and they asked him what his, the most influential book was. And he's with these other academics who had like Plato. And mm-hmm. he said, um, Lou Gehrig, The Quiet Hero. Mm-hmm. It was like, a, you know, that was his favorite book. So, but that's what they grew up with. It was like a mythology of New York and baseball. And it's sort of, you know, it was just a great, I always was envious of his childhood. And my childhood compared to now looks incredible. Because we we were all a bunch of kids roaming around, but then they were really free. It yeah. seemed very free to me. Yeah, and everyone was trying to make their mark. Everyone was trying to get ahead and you know uh, get one uh, get, get you know reach the American dream. And, and uh, their parents were yeah. immigrants. Uh, they were considered outsiders. They cons- they felt as outsiders. You know, they didn't speak the language in many cases, and they didn't know the American customs. And it was a tough life. And the kids just yeah. you know took to it like a fish fish in water. Well, here's one of the great things I got from my father that's connected to that. I think. You know, a lot of people, when their friends are very successful, they're happy, but maybe not that happy. You know what I mean? Yeah. They feel like it, 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 it makes them look bad or it could have been them. Or, and I remember expressing that sentiment when I was a little kid about somebody that made a team I didn't make. And he, my father, like, scolded me. You know, he said with me, look, someone's going to be successful. Wouldn't it rather you be somebody that you're friends with and someone you know than some stranger? You know, and the attitude was the more everybody does better, your friends do better, you do better. Everybody's going to rise up together, you know, and now it's more like this feeling of limitations, which is something it's taken away from me when he had the, he still has the opposite view, which is my friend does well. It's good for me. We pull each other up. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a whole team effort. You know, it's, it's part of, it just reflects on you. I know this guy, look, we all got, you know, that it's a big sign. There's no bitterness. There's, there's very little, if any envy. It's like, uh, isn't that great? It's one of us. Yeah. Well, I was going to tell you before, because you mentioned going to the front of the line. So this is what I always, I just forgot it, which is we went to Epcot Center when I was a kid. And my father was working down there. I was maybe 12. And it was me, my, my, my whole family, plus my grandmother, my father's mother. And we waited in line for this big ride for like 40 minutes. And then we, they announced that the ride had broken. It was closed. So my father disappears and then reappears at the head of another line, like he's cut the whole line. And he's like, get in the line, get in the line. My mom's like, I will not get in the line. That is wrong. That is morally wrong. And my father's like, no, no, we already did our waiting. We waited for 40 minutes. We paid that bill. Now we're taking, you know, and it was turned into a huge, like philosophical split in the family. Like who would go with my father and cut the line because we already did our waiting and who would refuse like my mother because it was morally wrong? Oh, I, I would I would just like your mom because my mom was the same way. She used to just turn red. Uh, there used to be a long line at a restaurant. My father used to walk in and get a table. Come on. We don't have reservations. Don't worry about it. Come on. 
get to the front. We got a table. He'd be talking to the maitre d'. They'd be friends. And, and, and my mother would be like, oh, my gosh, I'm not walking in here in front yeah. of all these other people. And I became, That's I was exactly like her. It. My wife yells at me and she, she mocked me that, you know, she should be more like him. You know, but I never. I, I was like, I'm <laughs> same with me. I mean, try when your father wrote, you can negotiate anything. And it's like the number one book in the country. <laughs> try going in to negotiate for a car. You can't do it. It's right. just too embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, if, you, if you had to wrap it up, you know, for those who didn't read your dad's book and didn't know what kind of brilliant negotiator he was, what, what does he bring to the game that anyone could take? Because you say it's a lot of common sense. It's a lot of what they grew up in. What, what's, what's, the, um, what's the takeaway on that? Well, he's got a lot of little tricks that actually have, that really work. Okay. But the big thing is I always thought of him as kind of a Jewish Buddhist. So he himself knows nothing about Buddhism and would laugh at that. But it's all about detachment, about not caring very much, about, like he said, looking at it as a game. So his whole thing is don't become fixated on a particular outcome. Be ready to improvise. Always be ready to walk away. Always be ready to not respond. You know, somebody gives you a deadline, that's their deadline. There's a real deadline, that's not it. Remember when I was a kid, he had a deadline to write a book, a second book, and he was really late and he wanted to do something. My mother said, you can't, you have to do this. You've missed the deadline. And he said, and what happened? <laughs> she said, nothing. He goes, and that really wasn't the deadline, was it? I mean, that was always his attitude, you know? So um, I think that he thinks fun, having fun is like a huge important part of being a success in business and really look, stepping back. And that's why he always said, you can never negotiate for yourself. Because when you negotiate for yourself, you suddenly care way too yeah, much and, you're too, you're and too, you squeeze the wheel too tight. You're too emotionally involved. I am a terrible, terrible, terrible negotiator. I give in. I just walk. I don't like confrontation. But when my kids ask me to negotiate on their behalf and I text them what to say, what to offer, or my wife or friends, I'm great. But as soon as I become right. involved, I'm terrible. I, I pay the first price because, and I'm done. I mean, the other thing about, and that's me too. The other thing about my dad is like, He's not a hard ass like negotiator. He's not, he doesn't believe in the win lose because he thinks the win lose is going to turn eventually into the lose lose. That's right. You can't humiliate the other guy. You got to make the other guy walking out feeling pretty good about what happened. Otherwise, the deal is going to fall apart. Yeah. And he yeah. never, I never, you know, and he always give a little extra at the end just to make everybody feel happy about what happened here today. And then it will last. And another thing he said that I always think of is, People support things they help create. So if you're working out a deal, you want you don't want to dictate terms. You want the other guy to be involved and or man or woman be involved. I shouldn't say guy and take their suggestions and incorporate them and use what you can, because then they'll feel like they help create the thing and then they'll have a, a motive in making the thing stick. Yeah. Yeah. No, you know. Uh, back in um, the early 80s when the uh, Reichman family owned half, owned nine buildings in New York, the uh, Olympia York, they were just growing powerful. They did Canary Wharf, and they were just amazing. And Albert Reichman was a very, very tough negotiator. He didn't leave a crumb on the table. And when the tide turned, uh, yeah. he got they took that pound of flesh back. You know, there was they didn't give him anything. Uh, it's something that the banks remembered and they were not, you know, when he, he didn't give a crumb to them, they made sure not to give a crumb back to him. In fact, took a little more than they should have. But uh, yeah, it's, it's that where you both walk away smiling and uh, people think, and I think that's one of the things that um, I remember reading your dad's book and seeing how my father used to negotiate. It was never something where it's like in the movies or in TV where 
It's a tough negotiation, and they sit on one side of the table, they sit on the other. You offer apples, they offer bananas, and you settle on oranges. Not the way it was. Every time we see my right. father negotiate, it was, they used to be laughing at the end, and he could come on, come on, what could you do for me? Let, let's, well, let's work right. this out that we both walk away happy. Is this the best you can? And yeah. it was never like hard statements, either this or we're done. It was always, come on, what could you do? Let's well, he together. called that that hard negotiation the Soviet style. Yeah. And he explained right. why it never yeah. worked, and the Soviet Union collapsed, yeah. you know, which is, um, and he would always say when people treated him like that, when they dictated terms, or he would always say, in that case, better be dumb than yeah. be smart. Mm-hmm. And he would always say, I don't understand. I don't get what you just said. Can you help explain it to me? I'm not that smart. You know, and that would immediately disarm the other side. And what he always said to me is the most important words when you negotiate are who, huh, and why. And mm-hmm. I don't get it. <laughs> you know, so absolutely. And he usually figure out who you're dealing with and what's going to matter to them. But he would say that that Soviet style can be very successful in the short term and in the long term is going to come back and, and, and bite you, like you said, with the real estate. And it's also just a kind of a terrible way to live your life. Yeah. You know, when, when, you're, when you're in that situation, I found that if, if you walk away into negotiation where you uh, win-lose, I wouldn't say win-lose, it would be a situation where win and there's bitterness. You, you agree on something, but the other person wasn't involved. They felt like it was shoved down their throat. They felt cheated. They felt that they got the raw end of the, you know, the short end of the stick. It always comes back to bite you in the ass somehow. I don't know how, but the way the laws of the universe work, it always lands up on your front door, maybe five years, 10 years, or 20 years, where someone, and, and you know what's so amazing? People don't forget that. They don't forget no. when they were taken advantage of or felt that they were taken advantage of in a deal. And it's payback. And I've seen so many times someone would ask, I would ask someone about a certain so-and-so for a referral, and they would just, you know, they wouldn't say anything. They'd just give me a nod of a face or just, you know, grimace or something. And I said, why do you say that? And I go, I'm not saying anything. I'm just saying, you know, just how to deal with the guy and the guy, right. not a good guy. <laughs> you never know the repercussions yeah. of how you could screw yourself up and how many deals you could lose in the future or jobs you could lose or anything you lose just because you, someone on the other side of the table felt that you got the better end. Absolutely. And I think that, um, <laughs> you know, one thing my father always emphasized to me is that in the end, you can always make more money, you know? Like money's not the most important thing. You can make more money. There's more important things like time and your relationships, you know? So, and he started his book. The first negotiation he writes about is Abraham <clears throat> negotiating with God. Yeah. Sodom and you Gomorrah. Know, about, yeah. Yeah. Sodom and Gomorrah, because to him, that's a big, biggest example of his powers based on perception, which is, can you imagine a bigger power differential than God and Abraham? But Abraham uses appeals to God, you know? And like, think about your reputation, God. What will the people say if you wipe out all these, you know, innocent mm-hmm. people? So it's interesting because it's interesting that no, no, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. No, 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 no. It's just interesting that you, there's different ways you can appeal to people other than just hammer them. You know, Moses does the same thing when God wants to wipe out the people yeah. after the uh, golden calf. He talks about that. He that, says, yeah. "Hey, you know," he says, "God, what are the Egyptians going to say? You took them out of right. Egypt to kill them all." That's a, you know, and yeah, that's my a good father point. talked about it. He also says, and think about all the time you put in. You're going to have to right. start all over with a whole other people. Right, right. And what right. do they think they're going to go with you? Do they think you're just going to bring them out to the desert and kill them all? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's funny. I, you know, I didn't think about that. But yeah, that's it's so true. But I, I you know, I've always found that uh, uh, um, most good people, I would say, they, they put on a face when they have to negotiate, which from your father's perspective was 
And I think that's the fun part of it. It, it shouldn't be, uh, you know, a, a full contact sport. It's not, you're not going to play football with the guy. You're dealing with people at the end of the day, and they have their needs, they have their wants, they have their ambitions, they have their fears. Just work with them. You know, pick that up. Right. And his whole thing was to understand the price, you have to understand the player. Right. Which is a lot of time, you're, you got to look at, you got, I always say it was like radical empathy. Put yourself in that person's shoes and see how the world looks to them. And then you'll figure out what they care about, and then you'll be able to deal with them. Yeah, Because if you're just dealing about them in your own terms, they might not respond to that. you got to find the thing that they do care about. Yeah, and so many times it has nothing to do with the money. It has nothing yeah, to do with the saying, money. Yeah. yeah, you know, it has something to do with, uh, um, uh, you know, leaving, uh, you know. Um, there was one deal I once did with someone, and the whole thing it came out to be was, I'll donate X to a charity of your choice. It wasn't even about yeah. it. We just wanted to get the recognition. And felt that they weren't getting the recognition. I said, you know what? And they wanted to say that it wasn't the money by doing that. Yeah. To let you know that I care about something else. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, and it yeah. worked out. You know, I wrote the check and it was, it was, uh, it, I felt good. I felt good. And, and that was it. And I got a slightly better deal. But the point was that they, it, it wasn't about the money. The guy felt that he was not being recognized and uh, we couldn't settle it based on the numbers and the math. So he, you know, took an off ramp and said, let's do this. And I thought it was so brilliant. You know, I, I, yeah. I use that many times. I said, you know what, what's, what's a couple of dollars here or there? It's not going to matter. Let's close this deal. And then it's not about keeping score. Right. It's right. like, yeah, off the clock somehow. Yeah, yeah no, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a great thing. And, and, you know, um, uh, one thing uh, in your book was, um, that, that you mentioned was the, the, the whole thing about the, the perception of power and yeah. When you talk about your dad uh, as a kid, I think he was nine years old, crossing guard, puts on the sash. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I, that to me says everything. Why don't you share that with right. us? Right. Well, my father's whole thing is about power. So he says power is based on perception. If you think you got it, you got it, even if you don't got it. And he sort of sees his mission in the world as going to people that are seeing, being bogged down by institutions or feel like they're being stepped on and making them realize you have power. You just have to recognize it. And when he met Larry King, this is the story of how they met. He was, Larry was called Larry Zeiger at the time. That was his name. And Larry and my father had both gotten into trouble at school. And as a punishment, they were made crossing guards. And Larry was complaining as a kid that this is a busy work. They got to wake up early. It's a waste of time. It's a stupid job, unnecessary. And my father explained that he believed that the job actually was good and had a tremendous amount of power if you recognize it. And they got in an argument and they made a small bet. My father, to prove it, took his stop sign, went outside and just stopped traffic for many, many minutes. And very quickly, there was a huge traffic jam. People were screaming and yelling. Adults were getting in fights on the side of the street. And until a teacher came out and they had their sashes ripped off. Like my father said, it was like, you know, being kicked out of the military. They ripped off their sashes. But my father proved to Larry that power is based on perception. Right, and they were, what, nine years old or something at the time? Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. how they met. And I think also you mentioned in the book of, um, uh, at the convention, I think it was, where uh, Larry, went, Larry yeah. went up on stage and told your father, you can't go up on stage. There's no way. There's security. Al Gore was there, was vice president at the time. You can't go up. And your pop didn't listen to that. Well, it was a, it was a Democratic convention in New York, in Madison Square Garden. My father and Larry had had dinner. Larry was going to do a show from the garden and my father said, I will meet you on stage. <laughs> and now the thing about my father is if you say, all you have to do, if you want to go somewhere and say, you'll never get in. Oh, that's a challenge. And he always says, what, I can't get in? He say, no, you can't get in. <laughs> I can get in, 
you can't get in. So Larry, he said, I'll meet you on stage. Larry said, there's all this security. You don't have credentials. I couldn't blah, 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 blah. And my father said, I will see you there. And Larry said, you'll never get in. He's like, I'll never get in. And Larry tells the story in one of his books, which is he looks over, my father just walks up and he's on stage, you know? And the story, because I met a, I was already a reporter then. I met a reporter who'd seen it happen. And basically my father had gone up to the security guy with a notebook and a pen and started asking him millions of questions about the shifts, how many people in each shift, when the, and the guy just assumed my father was the boss right. and treated him like he was but, the but, boss. But I want to interject. Your father did not misrepresent and say, I am your boss. It was no. all the perception of the guy, and he wasn't going in, I am your boss, fake credentials, none of that. No, no. And the guy answered all his questions, and he said, you are doing a great job. Keep it up. And then the guy was happy, and he walked in. <laughs> It's it's just hysterical, you know. It, it, I've seen that I've seen that happen. As you mentioned, that, I've seen it so many times with my with my own, with my father when he used to do that. It, we were in, once at a, the Israeli Day Parade in New York, and the security was immense. My father just there was a thing, and he just walked right through, and he started talking to the guy in Hebrew, and he told him they assumed that he was somewhere with the Israeli intelligence. Come on, let's go. <laughs> we all crossed the street. Yeah. And there was a whole gang of people waiting. They didn't, he didn't flash anything. They just took his word for it. And, and, but it was just, it was just a, a, a demeanor. It was just, a, like I said, a swagger that, um, you know, fake it till you make it. And uh, it's absolutely amazing. Yeah, and you're right that it's like, it's no lies or anything. The other person does the assuming based on how this person is perceived by them. You yes. know, so. They fill, they fill in, in the blanks. They fill in the blanks. You're not, you're right. just, you're just there. And there's, well, the guy's wearing a suit and tie and he has a notebook. He must be important. Never misrepresented, but that's the, the other guy's problem. He, he sees it as that and just go along with it. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, and there is a, an aspect of, you said something earlier, my father used to say, because I would get worried applying for a job. And like, and my father would say, listen, 98% of the people in the world are schmucks. They're morons. <laughs> you're already way ahead just by showing up. You know, you're looking at it wrong. I, you know, I wanted you're to, imagining some geniuses out there. They're idiots, and you know. You know, I tell my kids it's so funny you say that. My one of my sons just got um, poached from a company, and he goes, "Well, I don't know this." I go, "Listen to me. The fact that you just show up and you return the call not nine o'clock, you return the call at five to nine. The guy tells you he wants you there right. at eight forty-five. Be there at eight thirty because showing up is ninety percent of it." 90% of the people aren't even bothering or they come late or they don't come prepared or they don't come dressed properly. You just beat them by getting there. And, and it's right. such a low barrier to entry that people just don't get it. Yeah. Well, one thing he said to me, just a little practical thing, just the other day was if you show up in a meeting, you're like 10 minutes late because it's, it's something you can't help traffic. People are a little bugged. You come in and you apologize and say, oh, geez, I'm so sorry. I'm 30 minutes late. And they go, oh, no, you're not 30 <laughs> minutes late. You're only 10 minutes late. And they wind up apologizing for you. Love, I got to write that down. <laughs> I got to write that down. That's, that's outstanding because I'm usually, you know, and, and I told my boys, I said, you know, guys, um, if, if you need to be at a meeting, you know, because I, I remember reading about Vince Lombardi, great coach of the, uh, of the Green Bay Packers and uh, legendary coach. He had Lombardi time. It was 15 minutes early. So if he wanted you yeah. to eight, that meant 745. And everyone had their watches turned to Lombardi time. And I once had a salesperson who was with me, and I came late. I came on time to a meeting uh, with a big allocator, and this salesman he was furious at me. He goes, "No, from now on," and he, he worked for me, and he told me a great lesson. He goes, "No, you come on Lombardi time. You just don't come to play the game. 
at the time. You get there, you relax, you drink your coffee, you, you're settled. Let the other guy become unsettled. And I've always tried to take that anytime we have a meeting, always the prep, just get there more relaxed. And it's nothing more than that. It's really, right. it's not, it's, these aren't things that you can't, that one needs to be a master negotiator. It doesn't, it, these are just simple things. But as you said, most people are schmucks. They, not the schmucks in the sense, they just don't know. They just don't right. know. And they think coming three, one quick thing before, I, I'm sorry to, to, to turn this interview where I'm speaking too much, but you just bring so many memories back. Uh, one <laughs> of my sons got a um, interview and uh, he went through three interviews and he was just out of college, just out of high school. He was a brilliant kid and he was, he was, this job was way above him, but it was giving him a shot and he didn't get it. And I found out from the person that introduced, uh, who, who shepherded him through, so why don't you get it? He goes, well, he had a bad interview. I said, what are you talking about? He goes, yeah, the fourth interview, he came late. It was 9 o'clock, he came 9.03. So I called my son, Richie. I said, Richie, what, what happened? He goes, no, Pop, I was there like 10 to 9, but I had to go to the bathroom that I came out. And I go, Rich, that lost you the job. From that time, never right. be late. If you have to go, don't go. <laughs> or get there a half yeah. hour, an hour early. And, and, and that lesson, uh, you know, hopefully stuck with my kids, but it sticks with me that if just showing up, these aren't difficult things to do. Well, I feel the same way. And I'll tell you what made me realize it, which is I used to be late a lot when I'm talking about when I'm 21, 22 years old. And I went to <laughs> meet somebody and they were like 30 minutes late. And it made me so mad because I thought, this isn't just somebody late. This is somebody that doesn't give a crap about my time. Like right. I got stuff to do right. and I'm sitting here. This is somebody that has no respect for me. That it doesn't look at me as uh, my time is important as their time. I'm on the same level as them. And, and then I thought every time you're late like that, that's how you're starting. You're putting yourself in a hole where the person thinks this person has no respect for me. I don't want, you know, so just imagine how that, and, and it was never late again. I'd always rather leave like 15 minutes i'd rather be like when i go meet someone in the city because in the city i'm usually get there like 30 40 minutes early because you never know about traffic and i'll just walk around you know and i'll also tell you my favorite quote about vince lombardi which is uh he never lost a game but occasionally he ran out of time yeah yeah good point <laughs> yeah that's great and another brooklyn uh, i think he was from brooklyn too he was sheep said back and yeah, from I grew Alabama. up on a farm in Sheepshead yeah, Bay. It was, back then it was, uh, you know, rural, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's why Sheepshead Bay, right? They had a racetrack there. I grew up a few, right. uh, a, little, a little from there. Yeah, yeah, it was a pretty rural place. You grew up from, uh, from there. You know, um, so, so, so uh, your dad is what, 88 years old or so? 89. 89, God bless. And uh, is he still active in, in terms of? Yeah, actually just this weekend, it's a hundred year anniversary. We, I think we talked about this. So my grandmother arrived in America, 1922 in June, you know, whatever, 11th. So we all got together, all her descendants. And my father was sort of the MC and told a lot of funny jokes and stories. And we all got up and shared reminiscences about our grandma Esther. No, that's beautiful. That's really nice. Um, so sum this up for me, um, uh, Rich, in terms of uh, if I wanted some quick things to negotiate, just little, little tricks, not little tricks, but little uh, um, stepping, stepping points on how to be just a better negotiator. What would you say? And I'm negotiating for myself. First, just don't attach so much to the outcome. Don't really care. Be willing to walk away. Two, don't rush. Don't hurry. Sometimes the best response is no response. And sometimes the best thing to do is wait. One thing that my father always told me was that 
you it, to be a successful negotiator, you have to learn to live with ambiguity. That means mm. you don't know what's going to happen. That might be like, I really want this house. I haven't heard. I'm going to call them. You know, don't do that. Just wait. And basically, the price of ambiguity is stress. So you have to learn to live with that stress. Now, you don't have to live with that stress. If you want, you could go ahead, but you'll pay for it. You know, and two, you when doing a negotiation, I really realize this with him buying houses, you got to make the other side feel like they stretched you a little further than you wanted right, to go. Right. So they feel like they got the most out of it. Sometimes you think I'll just offer the asking price, especially like in a hot market for worst, something. Worst thing the in result, the world. Yeah, worst thing in the world. The other the other person thinks I didn't ask for enough money and I lost money on this deal and I want out of no, it. No, no. Think about how many times if, if I've made uh, an offer and people have hit the offer, lifted the offer, and I look and I said, "Oh, not good. I didn't ask enough." Yeah. You know, you feel yeah. you feel like you, you got taken. You want both sides have to feel the other side went just a little further than made them comfortable, and then you can get a good deal. Yeah. Yeah. And, and your dad went around the country, really around the real world, teaching. When he was teaching how to negotiate, what were some of the things that most people came with a handicap? What was the handicap that most people came that they had to relearn or they looked at this and said, wow, this is something that I never thought of? Well, one thing that I remember is that they were very intimidated by any kind of put on authority. Just like we talked about how he could put on authority and other people would just accept what he said. And the example he gave was going into Sears because it was an experience everybody had and they had a big price on it. And he acted like they acted as if that price was put there by the big printer in the sky. It couldn't be questioned. It, 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 was, a, it was authoritative. It was authoritative. Right. It said eight ninety nine. dollars There's no question. You cannot get a nickel less. Right. And his whole thing was. This thing looks like it was put there by God. It wasn't. It was like three or four people in a room that randomly came up with this price. Itself was a product of a negotiation. And anything that's a product of a negotiation, you can negotiate. And he gave a series of tips just specifically for that wow. that I remember, which is one is, say, you know, what if I bought 10 of these? How much would it be then? Because you'll get a different price. Well, what's the sale price? He said, because it's always about to go on sale. They'll give you that price. How, mu how much for one that's a floor model that's blemished? And he said, if there is no blemish, consider creating a blemish, <laughs> you know, so but very practical stuff. But uh, that he thought was all it's about something bigger. You know, when we were um, uh, and my mother was came with us, my, I came from a family of four boys, uh, myself and three brothers. So uh, it was my bar mitzvah or my brother, Gary's bar mitzvah. So we went to a clothing store and each suit, I don't know, said one hundred fifty dollars or something. So my mother goes to my father, Billy, it's too much. He goes, don't worry about it. So the guy sized us all up, spent an hour or so, and he worked on us, this. And the guy goes, all right, it's 150 times, uh, times five, it's 750. My father goes, no, too much. I can't afford it. He goes, no, that's the price. He goes, all right, that's the price for one, but I'm going away with five. You're making a right. sale on five. He goes, I can't do anything. My father goes, all right, boys, get your stuff. And my mother is like, what? The moment is a week away. We need suits. He goes, forget it. We'll go somewhere else. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. And we literally, I remember taking off that. I'm like, I'm thinking, oh, gosh, we spent so much time. I really love this suit. It was probably some velvet suit back in the 70s. And no, it's great. This Take it off. As we're taking off, the guy's taking it from us. This my father goes, keep going. Let's go. We're walking out. As we're walking out, manager comes running. Wait, wait, wait. Come back here. What do you want to pay? I want to pay $80. Yeah. Guy goes, how about 90 Father shakes his hand. Done. Wrap them up. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember I was maybe 14 years old at the time. I said, holy smokes. 
if if there's a you know it it's it's everything's negotiable up until the last moment if you believe that you don't need it and here this guy I don't know what commission they were working on but they were not going to let five suits walk out the door you know regardless right. well actually he speaks specifically about that my father had a technique that he calls the nibble where you go into a suit store and you spend a lot of time that's the key you got to make the other side invest a lot of time and he says you try out in every different suit the guy's getting totally sick of you you get to the point where he always said where you're in the three-way mirror and they got your hand, pants pitched up and the tailor's at your legs and he's got needles in the, and then you say what kind of ties will you throw in with this and he's like i guarantee you're getting three to four ties oh 100 you know? yeah yeah no that's you know it's yeah you know i think it just comes down to a lot of confidence and and uh, uh you know it's I can't, I can't it's a swagger it's really a swagger that i i and i think back when i started a money management business i was only 22 years old i didn't have a track record i had nothing but uh, i just had confidence and i used to walk into people my father's age and older and ask them to open an account with me. They go, what's your track? Don't worry, I got you back on this one. And it was just like uh -huh. that, you know, and, and I just faked it till I made it. I just exuded confidence and people want to invest with people who are confident. And I was able to raise money without just showing up. I didn't have a, I didn't have a college degree, that's for sure. I just had some experience trading on the floor, but it was a sense of that swagger. I walked in there, I said, you're going to give your money to some other schmuck. You might as well be me. I'm going to take care of you. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I do think that... One other little thing that he said that made me think of your father, he always said that, and he acted like it was a statistical reality, I don't know, that like 98% of deals close within 30 minutes of the deadline or 30 minutes after the deadline. Maybe that's it. And you see, I mean, he's been very, it's interesting because the, 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 like the Iran deal, all that stuff, he's been very interested in all that stuff because that's kind of what he did. And he always saw it as the same. It wasn't any different than going in and buying a suit, you know? And one of the things he criticized Jimmy Carter for with the hostages is Jimmy Carter right away said, we'll do, I'm not leaving the White House until the hostages right. are released. I remember that. We're going to do whatever we can to get the hostage released. And he said, what, what, what happened is the whole country became hostages. And the, what happens when you say, I'm not leaving this store without a suit, no matter what happens, what just happened to the price? It went up. It and your went father up. knew that instinctually. Yeah. They have to believe you're going to walk out the door then the price comes down. And you, Carter said, I'm never walking out the door without, you know. Yeah. So yeah. in a way, it would like seem like a humanitarian thing. You don't want to say, but you don't do the hostages any favor by doing that. You keep, they, they remain stuck in there an extra six months. Yeah. And also what uh, President Trump did with the Iran deal. He said, they're taking, they're raking us over the coals. We're giving everything and they're taking nothing. You know what? No deal. <laughs> and that was right. it. Just walk away from the deal. You know, it, it, and his other thing my father would say is you have to get a concession when you give a concession, not because you even need the concession, but because if it's in a hostile negotiation, it'll just be read as weakness. Right. And will make harder, it'll make it harder to get a deal. Yeah, that's not easier. Great. That is absolutely great. All right, Rich, I could speak you through the next couple of hours, man. This is, uh, you know, yeah. funny, I, I grew up in Brooklyn, so to me, a lot of this is like, I, I, I would never, and also for a couple of years, which I hated, I was in the garment business. So Garment business, there's never a price. <laughs> you know, the price right. is, you just start with a number, you know, that's just, and I used right. to go selling to, to local businessmen. It was, uh, all right, how much a dozen? $72. All right, if I buy a thousand dozen, I thought, wow, well, $50. All right, try one dozen, see if it works. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, it happened all the time. It was just, uh, it, it, I used to just get raked over the coals, but I, I learned, you know, you just, you learn that the number is just the starting point. It's not the end.
and you never pay yeah. the full price. You never, you know, I don't do it on everything now because I just like, you know, screw it. It's not worth it to me. But uh, some things that, uh, 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 you know, when I'm, when I see that's a problem, when I, and your father got this right on top. And I remember the, with, I heard on a podcast or maybe in the book where your father let his emotions get the better of him when he was being yeah. sued in a lawsuit that he didn't yeah. develop the win-win. And it was, right. he was right, but it wasted so much time and, and money from him. Uh, you want to just share that with us before we go? Yeah, well, he he got sued and he and it, the book was so <laughs> successful that it was a thing that happens where people come out of the woodwork and they sue you and they're like frivolous lawsuits. And he was told by his publisher just to settle it for a few thousand dollars. And instead he refused to settle it because he said, if I settle it, it's like admitting or saying right. that I got this idea from somebody else. And a lot of the stuff he was being sued about was like stories about me. I, I knew it wasn't right because it had, I lived through it. But he became fixated on he couldn't settle this thing. And he ended up spending, he countersued. Because he said, if they say I, they took it from me, that means I took it from them, it means they took it from me. And an amazing turnabout happened in this case where he said he'd been talking about this stuff since he'd worked at Sears and Allstate, and which was 20 years before anybody, any of these people wrote a book. And they went back and they found a guy from Sears who worked with my father at that time thinking this guy's going to not remember any of this stuff. And we're going to say, look, did he? And they went to the guy and they interviewed him. He goes, oh, yeah, I remember. And in fact, he put out workbooks for us teaching us oh, to wow. negotiate. Wow. And I still have one of those workbooks. Wow. And in the workbook was all the stories already written because he was years after years putting this stuff together. And the other lawyer's like, why would you keep this? And he's like, because this stuff really works. <laughs> and then at that point... They immediately moved to settle and the, and my father got actually got money. They had to pay him and he got some amount of money. But the point is, even so he lost four years of his life fighting this thing uh, that he can never get back. Yeah. But it's something that these guys from the old neighborhood, it, it wasn't really money. It was, you never let a bully win. You never give a bully an inch. Yeah. That was his thing. You never you let know? a bully win. If you let one bully pick on you, then the other bullies That's come right. out of the woodwork. You got to show you're willing to. He, his thing was like, I want these people to think if you mess with this guy, he's so freaking crazy, right? That no one's going to start up with him ever again. You know, I, I, my father passed away a few years ago. In fact, three years ago, about now, and I I can't remember a time in my life where he was ever scared. He would he, yeah. if he believed his principles were right, and he believed he was on the side of being right. He, he would stand up against anybody, anybody, didn't matter who it was. And uh, it, it was such a conviction. It wasn't the money. It wasn't, it wasn't the fame. It wasn't the glory. It wasn't the respect. It was, if you're a bully, you cannot step over me because if I give an inch, you're going to roll over everyone else. And they used to stand down bullies. <laughs> well, my father used to say this thing when he would get incensed about something and start fighting, something that I thought was insignificant. And I would say, why are you doing this? And he would always say, because it's 1944 and these bastards are killing Jews. Mm. That's what he said every time. You know, that was his like, you know, you got to always stand up and fight. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It's, it's, it's something. It really is something. Well, the name of the book, folks, is The Adventures of Herbie Cohen, World's Greatest Negotiator by none other than a great student and also his son, <laughs> Rich Cohen. Rich, uh, Rich is a prolific author, guys. I really suggest if you look at his other stuff, I read a few of his other books, really well-written, and they just fly by, especially Tough Jews was an outstanding, outstanding book. Really enjoyed that. Uh, Rich, thanks so much. I, I really enjoyed our conversation. Yeah, great talking. Appreciate it. Fun. Take care. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of The Charles Mizrahi Show. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you've been listening for a while, we're glad to have you back. Either way, we'd love to know what you think of the show. Please leave a review if you listen on Apple Podcasts. Reviews make it easier for others to find the show. You can also see the video of the interview on The Charles Mizrahi Show channel on YouTube.